This is Exodus 24, 1 through 11. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brian. Um, hey, good morning. Uh, we have been in a series on the book of Exodus uh, this whole semester, and today is the final uh, sermon in the book of Exodus. Um, it has been quite a journey, and uh, if you noticed, what Brian just read is from Exodus 24. Uh, Exodus 24 is not uh, the final chapter in the book of Exodus, um, but it is a very fitting passage a very fitting story to close with as we close out our time in Exodus. This, this story, we've called our series A Love That Delivers, this story of God coming down and delivering his people out from their oppression and out from their taskmaster and out from their enslavement. He delivers them into a new freedom. He delivers them from slavery and into freedom as he's taking them to the promised land. And we've gotten in the narrative uh, to Mount Sinai, which is kind of the central location for all of Exodus. The rest of the book of Exodus, the people will be at Mount Sinai. And so it's fitting that we close at Mount Sinai. This is, this is a, a very sacred place in the biblical narrative. Lots of stories happen at Mount Sinai. So we're closing with this very unique story that kind of sums up the entire book of Exodus. Uh, very, very fittingly. So Moses and the Israelites, Moses and the elders, actually more specifically in verse one, if you caught that, they are told by God to come up the mountain of Mount Sinai, come up the mountain and worship him. That's the very first verse of this whole narrative. Come up the mountain and worship me. You, Moses, 70 elders and the, and the high priest Aaron and his, and his sons, come up and worship me. So before we go too far into this text, let's never forget as we're walking through this text today that worship is the framework for this story. Worship is the goal of this entire mini narrative of Exodus chapter 24. He says, come up to the mountain and worship me. Now everything that happens from here on out throughout this little story is about that call, the call into worship. And the case could be made, actually, that worship is not just the goal of this little story where God calls them to come worship him. Worship is the goal of Exodus. 
When Moses encounters God in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, God comes to Moses in this burning bush and he says, Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt to free my people from slavery so that you can lead them out of slavery and come and worship me on this mountain. I'm doing all of this rescuing. I'm doing all of this delivering. I'm sending all the 10 plagues. I'm parting the Red Sea so that you can have your people and lead them back into the wilderness to worship me. So God did all of this rescuing so that the people could worship him. Does that sound a little shallow to you? Or maybe a better word, if we're a little bit more honest, does that sound a little boring to you? Like God did all of this so they could come sing some praise songs? Like, is that, is that what this whole thing is all about? Is that why God spent all of this energy and all of this power and all of this might to come and rescue his people from slavery so they could come and worship him? Or is it possible that we have a misunderstanding of what worship is all about. Would you consider with me this morning that if this little mini narrative, these 11 verses, is all about worship, and we're going to see the trajectory of how this storyline plays out, because it ends with worship. But I, I, I have been challenged by this this week. I, I hope it challenges all of us. Maybe we don't understand worship. Maybe what we've come with our semantics and our experience and we've come to understand worship is something that, that the Bible never even speaks about. And God has a very different idea about what worship is. And so God saving people to worship him is way better, way more um, joyful than you first hear when you hear that story. God saved them so that they could worship. God's calling them up on the mountain to worship. All right, let's skip the boring stuff. And let's get to some more action. Maybe we need to re-understand worship. So Moses is called to the mountain with Aaron and the elders to worship. And then there's these stipulations given. I don't know if you caught them in the first couple of verses that Brian just read. Moses and the elders are called up, but God gives some stipulations. He says, but wait, 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 you, you're going to come up and worship, but you, you can't get too close. Elders, you need to stay back a little bit. Moses, you can come a little closer than them, but you need to stay back. What's going on with these stipulations? Why are there these rules, kind of like these, these like barriers of, hey, come and worship me, but, but stay back. It kind of feels like someone, you know, in the friend zone or something. Like you got to stay, whoa, whoa, you know, and sorry. So it's because if you remember a couple chapters before in Exodus chapter 19, when the people arrive at Mount Sinai, God warns the people that he is a holy God. And a holy God has brought them to Mount Sinai, but if an unholy people try to approach a holy God, there's going to be problems. In fact, God tells them, hey, Israelites, if you're unholy when you come close to this mountain, if you even touch the mountain or any of your animals touch the mountain and they haven't been cleaned and they haven't been, they haven't been uh, properly sacrificed for, everybody will die that touches the mountain because God is on the mountain and God is holy and an unholy people can't touch a holy God. And so God sobers up the people in chapter 19. He commands them all to stay back from Mount Sinai. We're told in chapter 19 that the mountain is covered in smoke. We're also told that the entire mountain is trembling. And there's this loud trumpet sound when the presence of God descends on the mountain. There's fear and terror and dread in the people as Mount Sinai embraces the, the presence of God coming down on it. And God says, stay back, it's for your own good. And now on that very trembling mountain, he's calling Moses and the elders up to worship him. And so you can imagine the people, they're watching this mountain shake. They're watching this thing tremble and God gave all these warnings, stay back. And now Moses is going to go up the mountain and worship God. Quite frankly, the Israelites have been rescued by an unapproachable God. He's saying, my, my holiness is going to melt you if you get too close. 
And that doesn't really fit with our, our modern cultural understanding of God, that God is this warm fuzzy and, and God loves to have us sit on his lap. And, and, and some of that is true, but there's, there's something that we miss when we go, actually God calls the people to the mountain and then he tells them to stay back. He says, don't come up on the mountain. It's going to be really bad for you if you do that. It's for your own good that you would stay back. My holiness is too much for you. And now, in the context of that story, try to go there in your imagination, being in the, in the mass of people that is watching this mountain tremble and smoke descend on the mountain and trumpets resounding all throughout. Those people have their leader get the law from God. Ten Commandments, we talked about it last week. They get the Ten Commandments and several other laws, but the Ten Commandments is kind of the central aspect of it. And then those people with this holy law coming down, that God who's just trembled the mountain and given them his holy law calls people up to worship him. And if we finish this story, which we will, hopefully, depending on time, if we finish this, these 11 verses, we're going to see that this story ends in worship. He calls them to worship. This, this unapproachable, trembling, holy God calls them to worship. And then at the end of the story, there's some worshiping happening. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to get there. But something happens in the middle, in between, that, that, that bridges that gap for us. How can the unholy people, how can people who are supposed to stay away from the mountain go up the mountain and worship him? What happens in these seven verses in between that even makes it possible? And so this middle section that we're going to look at and spend most of our time in today is the journey of God calling people to worship him. This is the unapproachable, holy, trembling God calling people to worship him. And then that same God making a way and leading those same people into worship of him. They can't do it on their own. They need his help in doing it. That's the point of this story. It's the point of the book of Exodus. It might even be the story of the entire Bible. In fact, I was reading this this week. It's 11 verses. If you go back and read these 11 verses that Brian just read, Exodus 24, 1 through 11, I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. The entire biblical story is in these 11 verses. All of it. it, it it's, it's a summary of the entire biblical story. The unapproachable God, the holy God of the creator God of the universe calls people to worship him. And they can't do it without blood making a way so that they can enjoy him on the mountain. It's literally the biblical story in 11 verses. So we're going to cover it in about 20 minutes. Shouldn't be too hard. So what happens in this in-between that makes the call to worship possible for them to actually go up on the mountain and worship? Well, before Moses heads up the mountain, he has the laws that were just given to them by God, the Ten Commandments and, and so forth. He has those laws of chapters 20 through 24 read out loud. He has the laws. Before he's going to go up the mountain and worship God, he has these laws read for the people. And you may remember the people, when they first get to Mount Sinai in chapter 19, if you were here a few weeks ago, they're told that they're coming to Mount Sinai and they're about to receive all these laws. And if you remember how they responded in chapter 19, they do it again here. They'd actually do it twice here. They give the same response in chapter 19 as they do in chapter 24, and they do it twice here. Verse 3 and verse 7. They've heard the righteous requirements. They've heard the covenant stipulations. And did you catch what the people say? They say it twice. Everything the Lord says, we're going to do. Everything God is telling us to do, we're going to do. We're going to have perfect, faithful obedience to our end of the covenant. So this whole passage, we said, is all about worship. Remember, that's our backdrop. And the people of God in this encounter of worship What's the first thing they do? They promise their obedience. 
The people promise how much they will do. It's time to come and worship now, and the people begin by promising how much they're going to do. Does that sound familiar to anybody who's been a Christian for longer than three months? Can anybody relate to that experience of I'm coming to worship God, I need to kind of rile up what I'm going to do for him? I'm going to go encounter Jesus, or maybe even I'm, I'm, I'm driving on my way to work and I'm longing to encounter Jesus, I'm longing to worship. Let me think about all the things that I'm going to do for him. So you may be visiting this morning, and you may not even be a Christian. You may be a Christian but doesn't attend a worship service very regularly, or you may be a Christian who comes in here each week but really isn't sure why we even call this a worship service every week. But the word worship is not something that just religious people do. This is very important for us to understand. Worship, that word, is an old English word that's broken up into two words, worth-ship. Like friendship or partnership, where ship just connotates the essence of something. It's, it's something that, that in any time any human being gives, acknowledges, proclaims, or declares something else to have worth, that's worth-ship. That's, that's worshiping, when human beings declare, acknowledge, or speak that something out there outside of themselves or inside of themselves has worth. We do that every day. We worship something every day. We give worthship to many, many things. I do that with food. I do it with community. I do it with relationships. I do it with the NBA playoffs. I do it with music. I do it with money. I declare things to have worth to me. It's worth something to me. I declare something to have worth, and because I'm declaring it to have worth to me, I now rearrange my practices, my liturgies of my life, my regular routines, reflect and reinforce the beliefs of the things that I give worth to. That's why I eat at Taqueria three times a week. I'm there all the time. Javier's a good friend. Is Javier here? He keeps saying he's going to come down. Hey, Javier, good to see you. So we, we, we practice giving worth to things, and it's reflected in how we spend our time and how we spend our money, because I only am going to give my time and my money to things that I think are worth it. I will give worth-ship to lots of different things, and those things aren't necessarily bad things. I'm declaring them to have worth to me. Look at your life and look at the way you spend your time, look at the way you spend your money, and you will find what it is that you think has worth. And therefore, you will find what you worship. Worship is not only coming in and singing songs. That's one way to worship. It's one of the ways the Bible encourages us to worship, certainly. It's one of the best ways to worship because it's beckoning something from deep in our soul to sing out about something that we think has worth. So I don't know if you're an atheist, an agnostic, or a skeptic. I don't know if you're checking out church today or if you've been coming to church services since you were a fetus. I know that if I saw your calendar and your bank account, I can tell you what you think has worth. I can tell you what you worship with your life. Because we all do it all the time. It's not some over, it is very spiritual, but it's not some overly religious thing. We're all worshiping. We're all giving worth to things. We're declaring with our life and with our money and with our time and with our imaginations and with our fantasies and with our thoughts and with our friendships the things that we think give us worth or the things that we think have worth. If you'll stay with me here for just a minute, this, this is why the way that the Israelites respond in this section about worship is something we can all relate to. 
The Israelites in this passage, this passage that again is built all around worshiping the Lord, they step into the story and they immediately start talking about all that they're going to do. Let me rephrase that in in the context of what we're talking about. The Israelites think that what will make their relationship with God worth something and deserving of worthship is something that they're going to do for him. Whole sections about worship. And the Israelites twice, the only time they speak, they're talking about what they're going to do for God. In other words, it's a very man-centered worship. This is called me-centered worship. It's rooted in me. When I think that what gives my relationship with God worth is something that I'm going to do for him. Or at the very least, I can tend to think that I'm so unworthy that I have to add some worth to myself and to my performance and to my spirituality in order to make worship mean something or feel a certain way. The Israelites have just been read the perfect law of God from Mount Sinai, which we said a few weeks ago, if you were here, the law comes down originally to expose the sin problem that's going on in the people. That's the law's first purpose, is to expose their sin problems. That holy law, Moses just reads it out loud in our passage, the book of the covenant, the law of God, he reads it out loud. And they immediately respond by thinking, Everything that you just read, we're going to do. I'm going to add worth to this relationship by being a perfect, obedient person. When that happens, this will be worth something. That's what they're saying. So they've heard this book of the covenant with a shaking mountain in the backdrop, with a holy God descending on the mountain with smoke and trumpets blasting. Now, I don't know because the Bible doesn't say. Maybe they were um, overconfident. Maybe they were arrogant. Or maybe they were so deathly afraid of this perfect sin-exposing law with a fiery mountain in the background that they decided the only way to try to alleviate the fear of what I have going on right now is to promise that I'll be perfect. Either way, it's me-centered. Either way, it's selfish because they're saying, I'm going to be perfect and that'll give us worth, or I'm so afraid right now that I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how this relationship could have worth if I'm not perfect. So I'm not sure where their confidence level was, but I know what I do when I get afraid. I know what I do when I feel inadequate. I make promises that I think will settle all the accounts. I make promises that I think will purchase some peace for me. When things aren't going the way I want them to in relationships, when things aren't going the way I want them to in my spiritual journey, when things aren't going the way I want them to in my bank account, when there's an unsettling of my soul and I'm, I'm feeling inadequate and I'm afraid of what might come, I begin to make a lot of promises as I'm clawing and scratching for peace. Give me some peace and give me some rest. And I'm so afraid right now that there's going to be none of that. I'll just make a bunch of empty promises. I feel so unworthy. I can believe I'm so unworthy that I will try to add worth to the equation by promising what I will accomplish and I will achieve. Has anyone ever tried to make themselves feel worthy by the things that you accomplish and achieve? Anyone ever try to get some worth through the things that you do or the things that you've done? 
Does anybody look at the resume of their life and try to find peace with where they're at in the present by thinking about the things that I've accomplished and that makes me okay and that gives me some worth? Or does anyone look at the future and is kind of afraid of what things might go down and so you double down and go, I will be somebody, I will make something of my life, I will add worth to my life and I will make a bunch of promises to achieve and accomplish something going forward and maybe that will give me peace in the present whenever that present comes. That is called self-worship. That's trying to get and give worship to you, to give worth to you. And the Bible says not only is that sinful because we don't deserve that worship, it's toxic. It's like drinking poison and then waiting for someone else to die. It, it, it's it's self-harmful. It, it doesn't, we weren't made to be the recipient of our own worship, but just like the Israelites here, we promise our own obedience, we promise our own perfection, our own achievements to try to give us some worth and some peace. So the people promise... And then immediately God does something in response to their promising. The Lord responds by providing a sacrifice. Like the timing of this should, should startle us a little bit. It, it should at least wake us up. No sooner had the Israelites made this enormous commitment for perfect obedience, and immediately the Lord starts shedding blood for them. Immediately. Shouldn't he have given them a little bit of time? Like, okay, so you promise you're going to do good. We'll see how long that lasts. And then maybe that can make up for your disobedience. Maybe your perfect obedience will atone for what, what you've done. No, 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 no. They promise perfect obedience, and the Lord immediately provides an atoning sacrifice of blood for them. Immediately. They were so committed to their own view of themselves and how their own view of themselves would give this relationship worth but God knew what the relationship would require. It would require the blood of atonement. The people are overconfident. God here is overmerciful. The people here are saying, this is what I will do. This is what we will do, and that will give us worth here. And God is saying, I've got to immediately shift the, the narrative here. I've got to immediately kind of rewrite the story here. You think what gives this relationship worth is what you're going to do. I'm going to tell you immediately what's going to give this relationship worth is what I'm going to do for you. He provides blood not only to cover for their iniquities. We're also told here in this passage that this sprinkling of blood on the people, literally, I mean, they get covered with blood here. Millions of people is the blood of the covenant What's that word covenant is, is a religious word, but it also at its very uh, root is just a, a word to describe a relationship between two parties. So this is the blood of a relationship. This is the blood that will be the foundational building block for a relationship. The blood will hold this relationship together. This blood, this blood, God is saying, you think that your actions and your obedience is what's going to give this relationship worth I'm telling you, I'm flipping this on his head, this blood is what's going to give this relationship worth. This blood is what's going to hold this relationship together. Or to be more specific, this is the blood that will cause you to worship me. This atonement blood will cause you to see just how much worth I have, God is saying here. The blood that will hold this relationship intact won't be coming from you. Do you realize that, make no mistake about it, no blood is shed on the part of the Israelites. None. 
All the blood that is shed is, is shed by a substitute. And just as an FYI, if we talk about how ancient Near East covenants worked, covenants was this relationship between two parties, blood was always required from both parties, especially if the covenant was broken, especially if the covenant stipulations weren't adhered to. And God here says, I know you're not going to be faithful, and I'll already go ahead and provide the blood that you need in order to keep this relationship intact. That's not how covenants worked in the old days. And God is saying, I'm rewriting the tape here. We have a covenant relationship, and in order for us to stay in relationship, there's going to have to be some bloodshed, and I'm not going to require it of you. Normally, the offending party had to provide the blood. And God here, the innocent party, says, I'll provide the blood for you. I won't require your blood. The Lord allows for the blood of a substitute to be the foundational element in this relationship. He's saying here, in essence, you think your performance is what gives this relationship worth. You think you doing things for me is what worship is. You think that you achieving what is going to hold this relationship together will hold this relationship together. And I'm here to tell you that what gives this relationship worth is not your work for me. It's my work for you. It's what this whole middle section of seven verses is all about. The people promise twice how perfect they're going to be, and God keeps sprinkling them with blood. They wouldn't need blood covering if God thought they could be perfect. That's what Romans 2 says. They wouldn't need the blood of an atoning sacrifice if God actually thought they could do their end of the deal. They keep promising and promising and promising and promising, and God's going, you need more blood. You need more blood. And that theme that God would say to his people, what gives this relationship worth is not your work for me, but my work for you. That theme will continue throughout the whole Bible. Because if you fast forward this story into the New Testament, this chapter, Exodus chapter 24, is actually quoted, directly quoted, and referenced in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. And Hebrews makes it very clear that, that the Old Testament sacrifices that Moses had to do for the sake of the people, it did atone for their sins. It paid for the blood that was required. They needed blood to be shed to pay for their sins. But the, 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 the shedding of blood by these animal substitutes fell just a little bit short. And here's what Hebrews chapter 9, in reference to this chapter of Exodus chapter 24, here's what Hebrews chapter 9, where it says the blood of these animal sacrifices fell short. You know what it says? says that the blood of the animal sacrifices couldn't clear the conscience of the people. It, another way to say that is it couldn't give them the peace that they needed. It couldn't convince them that this relationship was going to be held intact by what God would do for them. So sacrifices like this, Hebrews says, because it couldn't quite clear the consciences of the people, it could, it could remove the, the, the need for bloodshed, but it couldn't remove their guilty conscience. Because, Hebrews says, because that was the case, these sacrifices that Moses uh, performs here had to be continually made, like, like every day, and every week, and every month, and every year, bloodshed, 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 bloodshed. And the people kept promising, kept promising, kept promising. We're going to do it, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And God just keeps showering them with blood. And the people are finally convinced about this. They're finally, con they're at the end of their empty promises. At the very end of the Old Testament. That's how long it takes, like thousands of years. They get to the end of the Old Testament. They've been in Babylonian captivity and they come back home to Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah are leading the, the, the rebuild project. 
And they're coming back home and, and they have the, the law of God, just like here in Exodus 24, in, in, Ezra, in, in Ezra chapter 8, they have this, this law read. The same law is read. And these same people, the descendants of these very people in Exodus 24, when they hear the law of God read in its entirety, guess what they don't do? They don't say, yes, we're going to do it perfectly. They've got a thousand years of history that lets them know that's not going to happen. You know what they do? You know what the Bible says they do when the law of God is read for them in, in, in way later on? They weep. They, they, can't, they can't take it. I, I, this law, I, I, we can't do it. We, we can't, we, we, we've needed too much blood. We, we, we can't do it. Until finally, the New Testament would say, Hebrews chapter 9 would say, the sacrifice of Jesus put an end to all of that. That the Bible says that the unapproachable holy God of the mountain actually stepped down and he stooped low and he didn't require the blood of his overconfident, self-centered people. He shed the blood of a perfect lamb and he paid for all their sins, past, present, and future. And guess what that sacrifice did, the Bible says? It cleared our conscience. It puts guilty consciences to sleep. It drowns the sins of God's people in a flood of mercy, past, present, and future. It forever states with, with a declaration from the heavens, what gives this relationship worth is not what you're going to do for me. It's what I've done for you. That's what the blood of Jesus does. And it gets sprinkled on the people once and for all, and you never need any more bloodshed, and that can clear your conscience. And it reveals to us just how worthy God is and how much he deserves our worship. So the people see this. They experience this blood sacrifice. God, the trembling mountain, all the scene is going on. They promise their obedience. And Moses just sprinkles them with the blood of the covenant. And then we get to the end. I'm going to reread for us verses 9 through 11. It says this, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay a hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. It's quite a magnificent scene. It's a very mysterious scene, and it's unlike just about any other passage in Scripture. There isn't a whole lot of this going on in Scripture Nobody, all the commentators who have spent their whole life studying the book of Exodus that I read to try to learn about the book of Exodus, none of them really know what the heck is happening here. Their time was a waste. No, I'm kidding. They, they, we're, told here, we're told here that they see God. They behold God on the mountaintop. But they also say that just kind of they, they behold like a glimpse of God. It says that they, they don't really get to see the full picture. They behold something under his feet which is kind of confusing, but it's meant to, to, at the very least, be reverential language. Like if you're bowing down in front of someone, that might be all that you'd see too. And they're bowing before him and they're adoring him. They're properly placed underneath the feet of their God. And that's not meant to be stated in shame, like, oh, I'm not worthy, like I can't even look at you and you hate me. It's this, no, I'm, I'm so adoring you. That's what the people are doing, that when they catch and they look up, all they catch is his feet and they're properly placed. They're worshiping their Lord. 
And it says here that under his feet was like sapphire blue gemstone. The NIV says lapis lazuli. I don't even know what that is. That's why we didn't read from the NIV. But that, that sapphire blue gemstone, we're told later on in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel gets this crazy vision in the temple. And we're told that same gemstone, that sapphire blue gemstone, that lapis lazuli, is what is in the throne room of God. Like that's, that's what his whole throne room is made out of. So we get this little glimpse in Exodus that the people are bowing down. They're just catching his feet as they glimpse him and they see this, this sapphire blue gemstone. They're in his throne room. They're in the throne room of their king. Or better yet, he has brought his throne room to them. He, he has brought the throne room down to them so that they could see him, so that they could worship him, so that they could adore him, so that they could see him for who he is and they would be properly placed in their worship of him. That they might behold, that they might enjoy, that they might catch even just a glimpse of him. And you know what they do? Now catch this picture. They're bowing down before him because they're only seeing his feet. And they catch just a glimpse of the throne room. And then do you know what it says they do? It's, it's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It says, and they beheld God and they ate and they drank. They fellowship. They, they literally just enjoy being with each other and their God in his throne room. They enjoy themselves in the presence of their king, the same king who just shed a bunch of covenant blood for their atonement. Covenants are almost always sealed and finished with the sharing of a joyous meal. We do it at weddings. When there's a wedding covenant that happens, it usually ends with an awesome meal if you spend the right kind of money. It's really, really good. <laughs> But that's the point of doing a feast after a wedding. It's because covenants are signed and sealed with the blood in the, in the ancient Near East, but then they're finished off with a party. They're finished off with the fellowship of a feast. They're finished off with a meal. And some of this is lost in our culture of dining and, and the way that we eat and the way that we do life, but we, we do get this on some level. Eating with other people for us, but especially for them in the ancient Near East, was a significant event it carried so much more meaning and weight for them than it does for us. And the biggest deal for any two parties to share a meal was it stated the, the nature of their relationship. It stated the intimacy of their relationship. You, you did not ever in the ancient Near East share a meal with an enemy. You could only share a meal. Only parties who were at peace with each other could dine together. That's what's happening here on the mountain. They come into the, the scene of worship promising all that they're going to do, and God has to shed some covenant blood to atone for their sins, past, present, and future. And then after that, they enter his throne room, adoring him, worshiping him, giving him worth. And you know what they do with him? They share a meal with him. They share a meal with him because they're not enemies anymore. They share a meal with him because they're at peace with their maker. Do you know what Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament says the blood of Jesus bought for you? The blood of Jesus bought a lot of things for you. A price tag you couldn't pay. You know one of the things that the blood of Jesus bought for you? Peace. Romans chapter 5, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
Not only are you at peace with God, let, let, me, let me turn this and make this just as intimate as the Bible makes it. Not only are you at peace with God, God's at peace with you. Meaning the way that you are today, meaning the way that you walked in here today, the burdens you walked in carrying here today, the shame that's crushing you, the sin that's entangling you, do you know that God's not frantic about those things like you are? God's at peace with you. Just the way you are and not as you should be. God has made peace with you. He's not at war with you. Do you know that if God is at peace with us, you can actually, and this is where we're, we're heading into communion. This is why this matters so much for us today. Do you know that if God is at peace with us, if God is at peace with you, then you can actually be still with him in his presence? I've got to confess to you, that's one of the hardest things in the world for me to do. I struggle massively to be still with my Jesus. When I enter in, into his presence, when I'm with him in prayer, or when I'm with him trying to just be still and calm, I'm so restless. I'm not at peace with him. I don't feel at peace with him. And so here's what happens when, I, when, when, the, when the treadmill starts and, and, the, and the stomach starts and you go, I don't, I don't like the way this feels. I don't like the way I feel right now. And it's hard for me to really power it down and be still. Here's what, here's what the blood of the covenant, here's what Romans chapter 5, if God is at peace with you, you can go be with him and don't have to prove anything. You can go and be with him and know that there is no agenda or no growth strategy. You can know that when he comes to be with you, when you go to be with him, there's peace there. There's no achieving to be done. There's no sins to justify. You don't have to prove the worth of the relationship to him because there's peace there. That's exactly what we see in our passage the covenant is confirmed by the blood of a substitute. There's peace in the presence of God. The passage that begins with the call to worship has an atonement made on behalf of an arrogant people, and it ends with them sitting on the mountainside in the throne room of God, sharing a peaceful meal in his presence. That, my friends, is the story of the Bible. You can enjoy a meal with him because of the atonement that he's made for you. And so please don't miss this. Please, this is what we started off by, by trying to, to question, maybe just for a minute. God has a very different idea of what worship is than you and I do. Remember the story. God calls them to worship, and then through an atonement into their arrogance, through an atonement into their fear, he makes a way through his blood. And at the end, worshiping is happening, and what is it? They're not up there singing a bunch of G chords. They're up there singing, eating, and drinking in his throne room. They're up there just enjoying being together. They're up there enjoying the presence of God because they're at peace with him. And God calls that worship, that they would just enjoy being with him because he's made a way for that to be done. That we bring our promises and our overconfidence into worship. And he brings his blood and his mercy into the picture, and he says, we're at peace now. Would you just enjoy being with me? I'm not at war with you. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to harm you. I'm trying to heal you. And healing from the Lord usually happens exclusively by being with him. He's not distressed about your life. He's not anxious about the things that you're anxious about. He's at peace. He's resting with you. That the unapproachable God of the mountain shed his blood to give us peace. 
Do you know he's worthy of your worship? Do you know just enjoying being with him, spending your time with him, is telling him how much worth you think he has? And the worth is rooted in not what we've done for him, but what he's done for us. So this communion that we're coming to, is so it's so fitting that we would close Exodus this way. It's also so fitting that it would just so happen providentially that we get to do this on a communion Sunday. Talk about this story. That we're invited just the same way as the Israelites to come and worship and to come and feast. Come and feast on the body and blood of Jesus and behold your God that you would get to be in his presence because you're at peace with him. Do you know that their feast that was bought with the blood of a substitute happened on the mountainside, blood of a substitute bought their peace, is our peace now that we're, we're feasting with God because on the body and blood of Jesus we have peace. We're feasting now. Do you know in Revelation, at the very end of time, there's going to be a massive feast? It's not just going to be a little snack of bread and juice. It's going to be a massive feast, a wedding covenant feast. And do you know what we're told in the book of Revelation makes that feast possible? Blood of a substitute. Feasting on the mountain, feasting in the church, feasting in the new heavens and the new earth one day, all of it, all the way through scripture, is because the blood of the substitute bought peace for the party. Look at what your Jesus has done for you. Look at the peace he has purchased by his blood. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to enter into worship and feast with that Jesus. King Jesus, we're hungry. Come and feed us now, we pray. In peace we come because of the blood of our substitute. Nourish us now and give us rest. Nourish us now in your presence that we might behold you just like they did on the mountainside, that we would properly be placed beneath you and adore you as we behold you. In Jesus' name, amen.